Hello and welcome to the Jammy Podcast episode 9. Today I'll be interviewing the incredible seven times New York Times bestseller Dan Abner. Dan is such an incredible man and we'll be discussing all things about his books and his life. And at the end of this episode, I'll be talking a little bit about the future of the Jammy podcast, so please do listen in to that. And if you wish to contact us, please just DM us on Instagram or email us at thejammypodcast at gmail.com. On that note, let's get right into it. I'm here with the seven times... seven... Times New York Times bestseller, novelist, and comic book writer Dan Abnet. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dan. Thank you for inviting me on, James. So, first of all, just so all listeners understand, what do you do as a job? Well, I am a freelance writer, uh, and I write. Uh, I write, as you pointed out, novels, a lot of novels uh, and short stories, but I also write comic books. Uh, for both Britain and America. Uh, I've been doing that for a long time. And occasionally I also write uh, for computer games as well. So I, 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 I write for a living, but I write all sorts of different things. And it's usually science fiction or fantasy. Yeah. So did you know from a young age that you wanted to write for a living? I think I probably did. Yes, I've always uh, always been interested in uh stories essentially and writing and when I was when I was very young I grew up in a very creative household my parents were both uh, both teachers and artists uh, so there was a very creative environment to grow up in and I was always encouraged to read for instance I started reading voraciously from a very early age uh, and to sort of write and to draw I, I used to like to draw as well um, and really that sort of grew I suppose um, I was about eight or nine years old when I first discovered comics uh, and up to that point, my two favourite occupations, my two favourite hobbies as a child was to either write stories or draw pictures. And when I was about eight or nine years old, I discovered comics, particularly Marvel comics. A friend of mine read Marvel comics. And um, and it really impressed me. So dynamic and so exciting. But I realised that actually I could do both of the things. So the two things I love doing most, I could do at the same time if I wrote and drew my own comics. So for many years, I, that's what I did. I wrote and drew my own comics. Really, really enjoyed doing that. Um, and there came a point, I guess, in my early teens, I suppose, where I really realised I couldn't draw fast enough to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. <laughs> and at that point, I think the writer part of me overtook anything else. And I eventually sort of pursued that. And and uh, and, and after I went to university, I, instead of, I, I was thinking about going to art college to study art or to go to university. I was encouraged to go to university and study English, which I did. And, and then wondered what to do with that. And, and sort of because of my interest in comics, that was the sort of thing I fell into first professionally. I, I, um, I wrote to Marvel in London uh, just to see what sort of jobs they were going because, because I was interested in the form of comics and didn't realise that they were advertising at the time for um, uh, editorial trainees. So they thought I was applying to an advert for a job. And they asked me to come in. And so I arrived one day and to find a room full of candidates waiting for, for, uh, for an interview, which I wasn't expecting. I just thought I was being, you know, asked in for a little chat. So I got one of those jobs. And I, w- I started working on comics. So that was the, my first work, uh, really sort of professional work writing was to, was to work in comics. But I wanted to do other things. And that eventually led to, to novels and, 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 and ultimately to games and things as well. Yeah, so you obviously studied English at uh, Oxford University. I did. 
one of the best universities in the world. What was your time like there? I, I, it was brilliant. It was also very unexpected. I, I have to say, I had a. Uh, I mentioned that I was encouraged to read English, but for, for the longest time, I thought I would study uh, art, go to art college. My parents are so both artists and art teachers, and 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 I really thought that's what I would do. And I, I was. I think it was around about the time of, of what was then O levels that I had a brilliant English teacher who encouraged me to consider reading English at university rather he said that he, he said to me at the time i know you're expecting to go to art college and that's fine if you want to do that because you can do that you've got the got the wherewithal to do it but you should recognize the fact that you could also study english and that might be a good thing for you to do because you're particularly good at it and i didn't really realize um so he not only encouraged me to consider going to university to do english which would completely not occur to me before but he also supported me in, and said and i will put you in for the oxbridge entrance exam which is something i had not at all considered. So, so thanks to his influence, my life took a, a, a really unexpected turn. And I loved it. I, I, I very much enjoyed my time there. Um, it's an extraordinary place. Uh, so full of history, you know, just sort of around you is an amazing place. Uh, and, uh, and I enjoyed it very much. And it's sort of, um, uh, even now, parts of that education, I suppose, my, just my interest in the language and the history of the, the English language and English literature, informs even the most trivial things I do. Um, uh, for instance, when I'm writing for Warhammer and inventing inventing alien languages and stuff like that, I often think about studying Anglo-Saxon and some of the things I did there to, to sort of give it a sort of a feeling of realism and everything. So, uh, uh, yes, it was, a, it, was a, it was a great thing. You had a passion for art, as you said, and you thought you were going to go to art college. Do you still have that strong passion for it now or has writing taken over? Uh, I think, yes, I think I really do. I'm still very interested in art. Uh, um, and sometimes I think, I, I th actually, my most of, my, my biggest expression of visual art, creatively speaking, is that I like to photograph. I'm a, a keen photographer, so I like to, I like to photograph. Uh, and sometimes I think I really ought to draw more or, or, or paint or something like that. And I know that it's been so long that I haven't got the practice and, and talent um but i also see them as very that things very interlinked you know sort of any creative pursuit um writing drawing whatever is uh they're all they're sort of all coming from the same sort of place so i'm often often intrigued when for instance you might see someone interviewed um there's a, a music musician a composer and um producer called brian Eno, whose work i like very very much in fact i often listen to it when i'm working because it's 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 often non-lyrical so it hasn't got words that interrupt my creative flow and he he published a few years ago he published a list of his sort of 20 things that he did in the musical music studio so his rules for working in the music studio and i was fascinated because apart from the fact that he was talking to, about music rather than writing there were so many of the things that he did that i did and i could see that that, that essentially it, it, the differences are the techniques that you use and where you take it but actually sort of a creative pursuit is a creative pursuit no matter what it is and obviously in terms of art because I still write comics, I'm engaged in art all the time. Although I'm not necessarily drawing it, a, a comic script uh, has, uh, I have to describe what I want the artist to draw. You know, I have to describe, literally describe, I imagine it, sometimes I draw sketches and thumbnails of page layouts about what I want wanted things to look like, what I think things should look like. And obviously then the art, as it's drawn, comes back to me to be to be dialogued and everything. So I'm very involved. Um, comics are a, a real team sport. 
you're working with an artist and with the colorist and with the letterer and 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 it's a very collective endeavor so that i'm even if i'm not actually drawing it i'm very involved in the way that it actually looks and the way the story is told through the art because obviously it's a visual medium so uh, i don't feel like i've deprived myself (laughs) (laughs) is there ever a time when you're writing comics that is it always the artist draws what the writing like accompanies the writing or does sometimes the artist who is drawing it come with a drawing and then you write for that well uh yes in two in two different ways it can work in it can work both ways around in, in terms of the technique of creating comics uh the the sort of tried and tested way is what they call a full script version where a writer like me will write a full script that in many respects resembles the screenplay of a movie it will be broken down into pages so it will have page one panel one and then i will write a description of what appears in the first panel and then the dialogue that will appear in that panel and then panel two so i actually sort of produce a prose version of what the comic will look like and that is given to the artist and then he draws he or she draws the panels and then the letterer puts the dialogue on afterwards so that's the full that's the traditional way of making comics Uh, but there is also a, a technique known as the marvel method which encourages the storytelling of the artist. Uh, and, and in that case, what I would do as the writer, I'd start off with writing just a simple plot. It wouldn't have all the dialogue. It wouldn't even break it down into panels. It would say something like, over the course of the first three pages, the following things happen. And it would, it would, just, it would just map out the order. And then the artist would draw it, choosing how many panels to break it down into and how it's told. And then those art pages would come back to me uh, at the writer, and I would then write the dialogue to fit what he'd actually drawn. Um, and that's also a very creative way of doing it because it is a it is a form of visual storytelling, and often the, the artist has got a much better grasp of how that can be accomplished than the writer. You know, I can imagine it, but they, they've actually got to execute it. And, 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 and in all of these things, there's a there's a combination because in whatever order it's being done in the first place, by the time the art is finished, it comes back to me. And even if I'm fairly happy with my script, I might adjust. I'll do a lettering pass, so I might adjust the script. So because you look at when you actually see the art, art, for instance, the an expression on a face or something, you might think of an even better line than the one you originally wrote before it was drawn. So you, you just sort of try and tie them all together. But the other way in which the collaboration happens is, is with a lot of the things I do, I know the artist I'm working with really well. And we'll have long conversations um, by phone, usually, or Skype these days, uh, and... Uh, uh, and discuss stuff. So I will I will actively find out what the artist is is interested in drawing or being excited in drawing, what sort of stories, what sort of elements, and see if I can create a script that allows them to do that. Because I think if a, if a creator, if an artist or anybody is happy and excited about what they're doing, they're going to produce their best work. So if a, an artist says to me, I don't know, they really want to draw dinosaurs, well, I'll find a way of putting dinosaurs in the story because I know that that means that the, the story will look really, really great. So there's a great collaboration and those collaborations work in, in, in very different ways. So, that you know, there's, there's, there's one artist I work with on a regular basis. We speak sort of every other day just to keep the thing going along, just that's the way our minds work. There's another artist I consider to be sort of very closely linked to in terms of creating that stuff, but, but it's only once every few months that we have a long conversation to plan the next thing that we're doing. So it's whatever suits the personality. I think that's, that's the, and, and then you, you get a kind of get a feeling of what sort of things they like and what sort of things they don't like, whether they like a very detailed script or they very like a very light script or whether they like, you know, all sorts of different things. You can sort of, you can sort of tailor it to them, but also make sure that you are getting the most out of what they do because you understand what they're good at. Yeah. And as well as working with artists, you have also done a lot of work writing with 
Andy Lanning. Yeah. Do you prefer working with somebody else than writing by yourself? Well, these days I do actually do all my writing by myself. Andy and I worked together for quite a long time. Um, and it was it was great because being a creative, it can be quite a lonely experience because you're stuck on your own in your own room, in your own head, inventing stuff. And so in the early days, he and I wrote uh, quite a lot of things together. The interesting thing about that was that Andy is a, um, he's an artist, actually. He's, he's famous for drawing and famous for being an inker, which is the, the finishing artist who comes in and makes the solid black lines on the top of the, the comic art. And he's not a writer, but he had loads of sort of ideas for stories. So we sort of partnered up because we could discuss stuff and, and, and we liked the same sorts of things. We could discuss them and be enthusiastic about them. And then I could turn them into stories. And, and from when we started doing that early on, because we hadn't, we were just breaking into comics, really. And it worked really, really well for quite a long time. Um, and we used to split the credit because it was the easiest way of doing it. You know, sort of it was much more complicated to say, well, well, Andy's had this bit of the idea and then I did that. And it was just like, well, we, we'll, we'll split, the, split the credits. And, and we did that for a long, long time. And essentially, we, we stopped a few years ago, I, I think because we'd... We'd sort of done everything we could do. I, I, the, the stuff I've done since, I'd, al I'd always written some things on my own as well, um, and, uh, and and we just sort of we sort of came to the end of that process. But but although Andy is the, the person I've collaborated most with over the years, there have been several other times that I, where I've worked alongside a writer, and even in some of the novel projects, where you would think it would be very difficult to com uh, to collaborate on a novel. Some of the things, for instance, for the Warhammer universe, where there's been a sort of writers' room, a team of novelists. Uh, all very solitary creatures who don't usually mix in in public, but we we gather together to plan out the Horus Heresy or something like that, and then and then there is there is this collaborative effort. So even though we own we write our own books, we have built the ideas to begin with in, in, a, in a in a very exciting way. So collaboration, yes, is 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 a is a terrifically good thing. So and and I think that's where I've for the last ten years or so, I say I do I, I write everything I write I write alone now. Uh, but I am at the same time collaborating with creators like artists and with uh, with games designers and, uh, and and that sort of thing, just to uh, to uh, to push things in, in directions that I hadn't done before. So I've sort of found a level that suits me. And and, and you also have to say your technique, one's technique, changes. I've been doing it for quite a long time, and I the way I write now, whether it's prose or comic books or even games, is completely different to the way it was. When I started out, it's evolved. Those processes have evolved. I've not necessarily found better ways of doing it, but I've found ways that suit me better. Or over the time, I've decided that this is a way I prefer to write things. So a very good example is right in the early days, logically, when I started to write comics, I would write things literally in the right order. I'd start, you know, page one, panel one, description, dialogue, description, dialogue. You know, I'd start at the beginning and work to the end. Because why wouldn't you? That's the, that's the way it makes sense to do it. Nowadays... Uh, I tend to I tend to write them backwards, <laughs> which sounds really weird. But I start out with the dialogue, which is usually the last part of the process, and I'll write the dialogue without any paying any attention at all to how it will break down into panels. So I write might write the dialogue for an entire twenty-two page story, and once I'm satisfied that it's got the story content and the character development that I want it to have, I'll then go back and break it down into pages and panels. And, and make it longer or shorter if I've, I'm usually pretty good at judging, but you know, sort of, so, so it's, it sounds counterintuitive to think that I, I now write backwards, but I know that it, that way is the best way of guaranteeing that the important thing that's coming from me, which is character 
is embedded in the script and then I can structure the rest around it to make it work. And that suits me fine. But if you told me that 10 years ago, I'd have laughed and I said, what a silly way of doing it. I wouldn't do it like that. And it was just, just the way it evolved. So, uh, so your techniques, techniques evolve over time as well. You find better ways of doing it or different ways of doing things. Yeah, so you mentioned Warhammer for yeah. 40,000, sorry. Um, how do you go about adapting characters like from a tabletop game to books? Well, uh, in a number of different ways. Uh, I, although, I, I mean, I'm prolific and uh, over the years, all the stuff I've written, I mean, e even writing things like comics for, for, for Marvel and DC, writing Batman or writing Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever, they're all still essentially uh licensed products so i am a sort of i'm a tie-in writer i go along to something that's previously been created and i and i try and add something to that and uh, uh, uh legacy uh, you know to con contribute to the ongoing legacy of whatever it is and i'm very happy to do that and it's it's a great challenge because it, it, it sometimes it's um there is enormous freedom writing something that is entirely original to yourself which is something that i do from time to time uh where you have no limits and it's bounded only by your own uh, imagination but I, I find enormous pleasure and this in, in being given something very specific almost like a list of ingredients you want you need to write a story with Batman and the Joker uh, and and Mr. Freeze and what you know and, and and then trying to make the best story it's like cooking what's the best dish you could make out of those ingredients and there's something very very pleasing about that and that goes back to like I said when I started off at, at Marvel in London we were producing um uh, licensed comics based on things like Ghostbusters and and, and uh, Thomas the Tank Engine and, and and you know so often often quite junior and nursery things, and you had to understand that license and then tell the best story with them. So it was it, they would they were the, there were abilities that I got very early on. So when it, so when a while ago now I was approached to write for Warhammer, they just decided that they wanted to do Warhammer novels, uh, Warhammer comic strips. It started with and then novels. Uh, I had sort of had to audition. And the most important thing to get right, there's such a wealth of uh, continuity and law attached to, to Warhammer, even back then, um, that they didn't expect us to know it all. But what they wanted to make sure was that we got the atmosphere, the tone right. If we could get that, we'd kind of pass the test because the other bits could be corrected later on. But if you didn't get the tone right. Um, and growing up, one of my other favourite things to do was I, I'd love role playing games. So I'd love Dungeons and Dragons and uh, things like that. So I was very, very well aware of Games Workshop and, and of Warhammer. So when I first started writing for them, I got that tone. And the rest was a, a matter of learning, which I've been doing. I've written probably in excess of 50 novels for them. And, and over the years, it's been, it's been, I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, and and I've, I've, I'm learning as I go along, but I'm also contributing as I go along because a lot of the novels I write are my own created sequences, like the Gaunt's Ghost series or the Eisenhorn series or whatever, where I've contributed a lot to the world building to add in, which is exactly how... Oddly, the game itself works because there you buy your you buy your army and you but you paint it the way you want to paint it and you invent the backstory you want to paint. And you take it along and you play against other players. Um, so it's all about Warhammer, like so many great things, is 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 a is a wonderful franchise that's full of holes that are deliberately left there to accommodate your imagination as a player or as a gamer or my imagination as a writer. So there's always things you can expand. So it delights me these days, for instance, when you see the latest editions of. Uh, rule books and codexes for for warhammer that they're full of words of things that are words that i invented 
years ago when I was first writing the novels because there wasn't a word for something. So I'd invent a word for something and it's become part of that world now. Uh, that's, that's a delightful thing to do. But it is quite difficult. So sometimes it's sometimes we create characters for the novels and sometimes, you, as you say, you're using a novel, uh, you're using a character that's, that's part of the game and has featured in the rule books and you've, you've got to got to discuss this deeply then the most obvious example of that was writing the Horus Heresy which is is the background mythology of the entire Warhammer 40,000 universe and and it's been talked about I think since the late 80s when it was first invented as part of the law and when they finally decided some years ago that they wanted to do a no novels we wanted to turn it into novels we wanted to tell the story and I was, I was part of the team recruited to do that I wrote the first one of the sequence and now we're, we're literally at the moment now writing the Siege of Terror novels, which is the last eight novels that finish it off. And it's a massive, it's over 60 novels that we've written for this thing, a, a team of authors. And there was a huge sense of responsibility that we had to get it right. And, and, and so we would have long meetings where the people who designed the game in the first place came in with every last reference they, could, they had for uh, certain characters and talked about how they'd imagined them and what they thought they would do and you know what, what this meant and what that meant. And Games Workshop... And this is true for many of the people I've worked with over the years, but they've been particularly good at accommodating, uh, answering questions. So there have been occasions, for instance, where it can't happen at the moment, sadly, because of what's going on in the world. But, but there have been occasions where I've visited their headquarters in Nottingham and either had long meetings with them face to face where they've explained things. Or I've been actually sort of let into the, uh, the studio or the forge world where they build the figures and design the figures and the, the vehicles and stuff like that. And I've had the people who made the vehicles explain to me how they think they work so that I can then describe them in a, in a novel. And that's, that's sort of a priceless thing. You, you, I suppose the secret is, is you've got to do your homework. If you are a, a novelist who writes original fiction, then you've got to do a lot of homework, but it's sort of your homework for the thing that you're inventing. But, but, but I've spent a lot of my career doing a lot of homework, researching things that other people have, have invented first and try to find a way of, making them work in a different form in this case prose uh, and that's really really interesting and it's it's um uh i find it a very rewarding thing to do i just just find it very creatively it's 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 I, to me it's not a case of just writing a story which mentions the right things it's it's a matter of writing a story which really makes the reader believe those things are real and there's there's a sort of there are various techniques to doing that. And that's the thing that I really find quite exciting, particularly when that, that thing might be something as preposterous as a space marine, you know, a sort of 10 foot tall armored person with a chainsaw. How do you make that in a novel seem believable? And that, that to me is part of the trick. Yeah. So one really big thing you co-created was Guardians of the Galaxy, bringing these previously unrelated characters together. Could you ever have imagined that it would now be so big uh no no not really no uh um uh, it was it was an extraordinary thing to be part of and a really exciting thing i have to say to be part of that but uh, but i'd always I, in terms of comics i'd always love comics as i said to you earlier on but i particularly love what's referred to as cosmic comics that is to say comics that are set in space that have a science fiction thing so i'd always loved uh, Marvel's cosmic characters, people like, you know, the Silver Surfer, for instance, and Captain Marvel and, and that. Um, and I'd like the really obscure ones that I'd read when I was, so, as you say, sort of unsuccessful characters, characters that were interesting, but had never really broken. And, and I uh, found myself writing uh, Nova, uh, who was their sort of space cop character, who briefly appears in the, in the Marvel movies. Um, and 
that turned out that turned to be very successful and that's where somebody said let's do a team book to go along so we had a solo book with a single hero let's do a team book that's also cosmic to go alongside it and that's where we we worked up the idea of doing a team that was eventually called the guardians of the galaxy uh and, and we did that for several years and that was that was and it was it was critically acclaimed um the, the funny thing about it is the guardians of the galaxy as a name was in, they were invented in 1969 and they refer to a completely different group of characters <laughs> uh, so uh, and, and the characters that i then called the guardians of the galaxy people like rocket raccoon and star lord and groot had all been solo characters at different places so it was a matter of the, what happened at the time to be perfectly honest with you is that marvel didn't marvel as a company didn't think that cosmic stories worked they didn't think it was very popular so the cosmic heroes tended to be uh, considered sort of third or fourth tier. They were sort of like, almost like the toys left in the bottom of the toy box because everybody else was playing with Captain America and Spider-Man and everything like that. So they sort of said, you know, help yourself. So I sort of rootled around and metaphorically in the bottom of this box and I went, Star-Lord, I liked Star-Lord. Rock, Rocket Raccoon, yeah, okay. And and then I thought, actually, wasn't there a super a cosmic super team, Guardians of the Galaxy? Let's, okay, let's call them that, but let's have, make it a joke that they've stolen the name from somebody. You know, just put together the ingredients. And it was the combination more than anything else that made it work. And it was also the fact that Marvel didn't really care what I did with the characters. So I think the stories could be more dramatic. Almost anything could happen. I didn't have the same responsibility that I might have had if I'd been writing, say, Spider-Man, where I had to make sure that I didn't damage the IP of Spider-Man, you know, and sort of do something to him that people went, oh, he's not Spider-Man anymore. With Guardians of the Galaxy, they sort of didn't mind very much. Um, so it was a fun thing to work on and, and it was, people did really, really love it. And, and it was a surprise success for them. But what was, what was then astonishing was the day my editor rang me up and said, uh, by then they were making the Marvel movies and they said, we've, we've just discovered what the next Marvel movie is going to be. And you're not going to believe it. And I said, what was it going to be? And they're, going, they're going to do guardians. And I couldn't believe it because we were a very minor book. There were so many other things you'd think, oh, they make a movie of that first. And quite clearly, Marvel Studios had decided they wanted to do a science fiction film. They wanted to do an outer space one. Uh, and they wanted to do something that had a certain comedic element. Um, I think almost as an experiment. And I think they may even have wanted to try and make a film that wasn't based on one of their really famous characters to see how well that, that went down. So they did. <laughs> they did it. I think they did it extraordinarily well. Um, uh, and it was, as you say, quite remarkable to go from a point where I was working on characters that I felt I was one of the few people in the world ever to remember because they were so forgotten to be a reasonably successful comic. And then within sort of six months or a year to step out in the street and see kids with, you know, groups, lunchboxes and because it, they had become household names globally. And that, that was a very, very weird thing to do. But it was, you know, I was... Marvel was very nice and they sort of included me in it because I got to visit the set and I got to see them filming it and I got to meet the cast and got to go to the premieres of the movies and, and that kind of stuff and, and got credited in, the, in it. So it was, a, it was a lovely process to be involved in. It really, really, it really was. But it was, it was weird. It was very weird. And it's very weird sitting in a cinema when uh, watching a film where something you've actually invented appears on the screen. So when they go to, for instance, Nowhere, or when Cosmo appeared in the film, the dog, the, the telepathic dog. These were all things I'd literally invented for it. And then suddenly they were being realised on the big screen. That was a very strange thing. So you said you were involved with the film. Could you sometimes say, actually, I don't think that's a thing Groot or, or Cosmo would do? Uh, 
I, it, I don't know what I, the thing is. I never had to because because James Gunn had done such a great job of doing it. I was completely pleased with with what he's doing. And I, there are necessarily things that you need to change between comics and, and movies to make a movie work. I mean, the same way that if I was doing a comic based on his movie, I would do it in quite the same way. But uh, they they had such a great handle on it. Um, I think there always been a lovely, lighthearted touch to some of the Marvel movies, particularly in Iron Man. But it was the first one where they decided that, that, that it was it could be properly entertaining to have some genuinely funny things in it. And he had that great touch for it. Um, so I, I, as I say, I, I sort of didn't really have to. Although, I, although James James Gunn himself showed me around the set, and he let me read his script. This was long before the film was released, and, and sort of asked my opinion and, and asked me what I thought of things and asked me what I thought of the way things had been visualised because they built the Milano, the Star Lord spaceship, life size, full, complete, so you could get on board it, and then and they could crank it up on a gimbal on the soundstage and move it round so it would fly. And they had built a soundstage that was the interior of the Dark Aster, the, the, the enormous enemy spaceship, which you could walk into, again, it was this huge hall that was amazing. And so it was... It was um, I think the very fact that I was re responding positively to it was uh, was enough for him to know that he, he clearly was getting it getting it right. I mean, I think he had a very very clear vision of it, and I love the fact that he he um, one of the, one of the decisions he made was to make it very colourful. All the spaceships are brightly coloured. Uh, he used the the great artist Chris Foss to do a lot of the colour designs because because so much science fiction has traditionally been sort of greys and pales and whites and metal colours and that kind of austere sense, and he wanted to make space colourful and exotic in the way that old. 1960s science fiction book jackets had been and I think that that was another another great touch that he brought to it so uh yes I don't know what would have happened if I'd said no that he would never say that <laughs> I decided I wouldn't do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you've written as you mentioned loads and loads of books whether and comics whether that's yeah. Warhammer or writing Guardians of the Galaxy you must write really fast uh, I do now. Yes. Uh, my, my, the speed at which I write has increased over the years because I'm just getting, I, I, I don't suppose, I don't think it's literally the speed at which I type. I think it's the, it, it's the, it's the efficiency I've learned about getting ideas down in first go. So I don't have to keep going back and reworking things quite so often. I do do that. Everyone revises their work. But quite often I'll sort of I'll sort of think about it and then get it done. I'm sort of, I, I, like I said I've been doing it for long enough to have a sort of a sort of trained expertise when it comes to trying to deliver something and getting it right as quickly as possible. But I also give the impression of be of writing very fast because I, I do a lot of things, as you point out. And the reason I do a lot of things is because I like to be busy. And the reason I like to be busy is because I, I discovered over years, over the years of doing it, that I think I produced my best work when I've got a slight feeling of being under pressure. So if I if I if you if you gave me one job and loads of time to do it in, I would do a good job of it. But but I would do a much better job if I had three jobs and slight, not quite enough time technically to do them, because that would increase the sort of natural creative stress of, of, of delivering on demand. So I've always slightly overloaded my schedule and taken on what other people would think of was slightly too much work to deliberately create that sense of, of of kind of pressure, not just deadlines, to get the best out of myself. So I write a lot because I am, uh, my working day, for instance, is, is uh, you know, I'll get up in the morning sometimes and I'll write maybe a couple of thousand words of, uh, of, of the latest chapter of whatever novel I'm writing. And then I might stop and have a cup of tea and then I might switch to a comic that I'm writing and write a few pages of that. And then in the afternoon I might go on and, 
and, and do some world building for a computer game that I'm working on. And, and each, so each, uh, the way I would describe it is that I never stay in the same universe for very long. Yeah. So there's never a risk of getting bored with anything. I never go, oh my God, I'm so sick of Warhammer. I can't stand it any longer, you know, or, or anything like that. I just, I just, I, I move efficiently through those. And I, and I, and I, I sort of write the things that I'm really in the mood to write. So if I wake up in a very, Warhammery science fiction mood, then I know that's a that's a mood I need to exploit because I'll get a really good chapter written when I'm in that frame of mind. And and uh, and, and 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 knowing that I can, it's, it, I suppose it's a bit like keeping plates spinning and, and applying the attention to the plate that, it, that needs the attention. So that's that's really what it is. I do. I I'm still. I have to confess, after after however many decades it's been that I've been doing this, I'm still essentially a two finger typist. But I'm the fastest two finger typist you've ever come across. <laughs> yeah. How long does it roughly take for you to write one book? Uh, you, by book, you mean a novel, I take it. Yeah, novel. Yeah. Uh, a novel, well, uh, a novel is, that's, uh, for what it's worth, that's the other interesting thing about it. Obviously, a comic, even, even an issue of a comic, say sort of 22 pages of Guardians of the Galaxy or Justice League or whatever, uh, I can write that in a, in a couple of days quite easily. Um, uh, sometimes I can write it faster than that if I know what I'm doing. But a novel is a, a, a minimum of about seventy or 80,000 words, and it's probably going to be in excess of 100,000, possibly as much as 110,000 words. There is, it doesn't matter how fast you are, you're not going to do that in one go. You can't just sort of write a novel in a couple of days and go, there you go, just, be, just because of the sheer physical size of it. So one of the other things that I find is quite interesting is that is that when I'm writing a novel, which is most of the time I've usually got a novel on the go, that's like carrying a kind of heavy weight around with me for a few weeks because because you never you never finish it. So if you know what I mean, you, you, you get yeah. up in the morning, you do you write the next bit of it and you go to bed and it's still not done and you're thinking about what you're going to do next and you wake up the next morning and you keep you carry on day after day after day after day there is an immense sense of relief when at the end of the process you finally finish the novel and you send it away because it's like putting down a heavy weight you haven't had to, you haven't got to carry those stories and characters around in your head anymore because you delivered them to the place that you needed to deliver them to so that's one of the other reasons i do comics as well or games as well is that in the course of however long it takes me to write the novel and carry that heavy weight around i can also do take a day off and do a smaller job, like write an issue of something or write something for 2000 AD and get a sense of completion because there's a job done and I can, I've can i got a sense of closure, which offsets the sense that I'm carrying this novel around with me. So the basic answer is that I, I, I if somebody asked me to write a novel, I would want a minimum of three months to do it in. Uh, sometimes some of the bigger, more complicated projects have taken longer than that, but that's to do, that's to do it sensibly uh i have it would be possible to do it faster than that uh but there would be a kind of i, I guess a health cost you know it would just be exhausting to try to do that but that but i i know for a fact that i have i have written a novel in under a month before of the many novels i've written there was one this was fairly early on uh, a good few years ago but i was writing one of the warhammer novels and uh it was a hundred thousand words and i had been given a three-month deadline, three or four-month deadline actually, and it was all going terribly well. Uh, and I was—I'd written about seventy or eighty thousand words of it, so I was in the—it was in the closing stage. And uh, my computer crashed, and I hadn't backed it up 
Uh, that was that was the day I learnt that I should always back up my work. So I, it was it was a useful useful professional tip. But my computer died completely, and there was no recovering this manuscript. I'd lost a, a huge amount of it. And I asked my editor what to do, and there was there was sort of a month left on the deadline. And the editor said, "This was the uh, say the early days where we didn't have as much of goodwill with printers and stuff like that." And it was a it was a big deal. Anyway, my my editor's suggestion was. Can you see if you can write it again as fast as possible? And we'll see if we can make the deadline. And being young and eager, I went, yeah, right then. So I literally wrote the novel again from scratch. And I did it in just under a month and delivered a 100,000 word novel. Uh, I didn't. It's not something I'd really want to repeat because it was exhausting. And, I, and that's all I did. And it was long days. And then I crash out and get some sleep and I come back and write the next bit. But But what was... Two, I think, two interesting things that happened, that, that, quite apart from discovering I could write a novel in a month. Um, two interesting things happened to it. One is the novel that I wrote in and finally delivered, and the published one that you can read today, is, in my estimation, far better than the one I lost, even though it's the same story. And I think the thing is that the, the one I lost was almost like a dress rehearsal. So when it came down to trying to do it again, I, there was no question. It was almost intuitive. I hadn't got time to stop. So I just did the best version of it and tried to remember the best bits and then improve upon things on the fly. So the, rather than it being a rushed job that was eventually published, just to, just, to, just to fill the gap, it was actually a better version than the one that I'd lost. And the other really weird thing that happened in the course of writing it is that there is a character in the published version who was not in the lost version. And this character... I did not consciously create. I was writing at such speed and I didn't want to have to keep revising. But I wrote a scene in which this new character suddenly appeared in this new version that I was writing, this new character appeared. And I didn't know where this character had come from. I hadn't consciously created the character. And I, I thought about going back and writing the character out. And I just thought, there's not time. So I just left, left him in. A, and um, this character then became one of the most popular characters in the series and sort of became the arch villain for the next three novels. And it was like he create he he'd appeared spontaneously that I hadn't deliberately designed him, and it, he only happened because I was working at such a blind furious speed. So and and that was one of the first experiences I had where I've read interviews with with authors that I admire, you know Stephen King and people like that, talking about they know a book is going well when the characters take on a life of their own and they sort of it's almost like the characters are deciding what happens next. And I've always thought that's a lovely way of describing it, but of course that doesn't really happen. Because that's a, that's a sort of romantic way of an author would to describe their writing process. But here it, here it was actually happening to me. This character came out of nowhere, demanded to be included, so sort of pushing characters out of the way to, to make a space for himself in the book, and then became such an important character going forward. And, it, and I went, really, it does. It was probably just subliminal, subconscious creativity. But even so, it was a really weird thing to be part of, to see that happening on the page. So, uh, yes, it gave, it, it's, I sort of learned a lot in correcting a, 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 you know, a, a disaster that occurred to me. Every cloud has a silver lining. Every cloud, yes. <laughs> when you first, when you first decide that you're going to write a new book or you're taking up a job to write a new book, what's the first thing that you do? Uh, well, um, I, I think I, I think the, the simplest answer to that is I think myself into that universe or the, also that part of that universe to sort of get a feel. I sort of. It's almost like method acting. I sort of try and get myself in there. If it's a novel about something specific that I haven't written before, I, I do like to research things so that I write something in a believable way. And of course, it's very difficult to research things when you're writing science fiction. So, so one of the things I often do is I'll, I'll try and find the nearest real world uh, 
analog to whatever I'm writing about and read a lot about that, read a lot of nonfiction about that and then sort of slide what I've learned sideways. So, for instance, when I wrote, I wrote a novel called Titanicus, which is about the giant titans, the giant war machines, which are huge humanoid castles that walk around with guns on them. that have got crews inside. And obviously they don't exist in the real world as far as I know. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and I, so I thought about it. I thought, well, actually, the closest thing I can think of that really exists are tanks and also submarines. So I did a lot of research about tanks and submarines just to get the sort of feeling about what it's like to be part of a crew of something like that, being caught in a claustrophobic metal container under fire and all this kind of stuff. And then I, and I, I used that in the novel about Titans, which readers seem to love because they said these titans are really believable and i thought well I, hopefully they're believable because it's it's real it's a relatable experience that comes from real world from historical research rather than from just from imagination so that uh, that is part of part of it, the thing i usually do these days um i sort of know in a two or three books in advance what i'm writing so uh, you know i'm writing a book at any point of the you know, I'll, I'll be writing a book knowing that when this is finished i'll be writing that book and in the back of my mind the little ideas are ticking over and in fact wherever I go I carry a, I carry a notebook with me wherever wherever I go and I just write things down as they occur to me just even if I know I can't use them now I'll just I'll make a note of them at the time because when the time comes that's incredibly useful to be able to um, to just to open a book and go oh that was what I was thinking because because that's something again that I, I learned very early on is that I've got a I've got a uh, sort of a very racing imagination I've got you know I have loads of ideas but just because you have loads of ideas, it doesn't mean to say that when you sit down to write, you will have all those ideas. You're, you're much more likely to have a great idea when you're, I don't know, watching television one evening or on the bus or something like that. So I, I just, just basically, you'll have to excuse my phone ringing in the background. There. It's probably an editor saying, where's that novel you promised? Um, uh, but yeah, so, I, so you write the ideas down as you have them uh, and then they're ready for use because if you don't write them down, you will forget them. Uh, I, I early on again in my career, I remember taking changes, sitting on a train to work and having loads of ideas and thinking, oh, that's great. I'll use those. And then by the time I got home, all I could remember was that I'd had an idea, but not what the idea was. So so hence the, the notebook. I now have a I have a whole shelf full of old notebooks that I've you know, filled up another one. Each one's dated on the first, you know, when, when the book is started. So I can I can look back and think, oh, I think it was last year I had that idea and I can go back there. But, yeah, you sort of. You, you learn efficiency tricks to being a writer sounds extremely exciting and it is i love doing it but it's very like i said very solitary and it's and it sounds like it's sort of boundless creativity and imagination <clears throat> but to make it work efficiently you need to learn very practical tricks about how to channel all that wild crazy ideas into into a way that is is sort of a professional format that can be delivered to an editor and will make sense so just just you know keeping track of ideas um, in the, in, when I'm writing a novel, quite often having mapped it out, I will have loads of post-it notes all over my desk with different sections of the novel in it. And as I write the novel, I will move the post-it notes around as I make decisions about where things should go in relation to each other. And then I know that a novel's coming to an end literally because the post-it notes are disappearing. Because one by one, I'm, I've done that bit, I've done that bit, I've done that bit. There's enormous satisfaction about how to steer those things around. Um, you just, I, I guess one of the things you'd learn over the years is, is ways of making the creative effort uh, easier on yourself so you can make the best job of writing the story rather than the best job of finding a way of remembering all the things you were trying to put in it. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, so thinking myself into it, maybe reading up um, uh, 
things that go before it. So if I'm writing the latest novel of a series that I've written books before, I'll go back and speed read the last few just to make sure I haven't forgotten anything. Um, there, are, Yes, all sorts of things. Or do something really simple like watch a movie that is vaguely in the same headspace as the thing I'm going to do, just to put myself in the mood. You know, if, it's, if I'm writing a big science fiction novel, I might go and watch a science fiction movie or re-watch one of my old fa favourite science fiction movies just to feel that kind of... Oh yeah, that's that's why I do this. You know, sort of you, you sort of put yourself in the mood, really. Yeah, and your books are hugely popular. You've been a seven times New York Times bestseller. Was it just as exciting the seventh time as it was <laughs> the first? Uh, yes, uh, and in fact, and then I, I don't wish to correct you. Uh, but I think I'm now nine times. I think wow. it's gone. I think it's gone up since Wikipedia recorded that. Um, Sorry. It's, it's, no, 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 no. It, I, it's one of those things where 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 I'm just delighted that there is a big audience. I mean, I, I, I'm aware of how many uh, how many of my books have remained in print, for instance, which is a sign of success that if you write a book and, you know, it might be sold for a few years and then go out of print. But a lot of mine remain in print. I know how many different I roughly know how many different languages I'm in, which is a lot. Because uh, I get sent the foreign language editions of my books, and sometimes I'm going, I don't even know that I wrote that. Did I write that? Is that my name? Uh, which is lovely. Um, and uh, and the response from the audience worldwide, obviously. I, I mean, I I don't do Twitter and things like that because I just it would be too distracting. But even on just a very limited scope of something like Facebook, there is a uh, I get amazing feedback. And if and again, we can't do them at the moment because of um, because of COVID, but but going to conventions and games days, both in this country and around the world, and meeting people and having great conversations with, with readers of all ages and uh, all backgrounds and all enthusiasms about the staff. And that, 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 is a, that is a tremendously exciting thing. That, that to me is, is the much more exciting, rewarding thing than thinking, oh, seven times, I mean, seven or nine or whatever it is, times yeah. New York Times bestseller is simply a mark of how many people have read it, which is lovely. But more importantly, it's the people who've read it. It's the people who send me messages and they say they really like that. Or indeed, people who send me polite messages saying, I really like that, but did you think about this? Or, or, or they'll, they'll, t they'll give me proper critique, critique and feedback, uh, which is, is a, 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 a sort of fantastic process. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, I sort of write everything I write is is with a view to trying to make sure that that audience gets more of the thing they like. But but at heart, I still write for myself, uh, not selfishly, but because I figure if, if I think it's good, if, I, if it's the sort of story I think I'd want to read then I figure other people would be too, because how else am I going to be able to judge it? If I try to write something, imagine what somebody else might like, I don't know if I could do a good job of that. But if I write something that I think I would like, I think other people will then like. And then, then it goes out there. And as, as far as I'm concerned, once it leaves me, it sort of belongs to you, the reader, with it, what, what you make of it, you know, even up to how you pronounce the names of the characters in it. It's up to you. It's, it's, it's yours. And I get the most terrific, terrific, amazing feedback from people all around the world. Um, about how, how, much, uh, how much they've enjoyed the books or what particular things they've really liked about the books. Once you've finished writing a book, do you, do you read the, the whole thing? I do, uh, yes. I don't know how many times I read each of my books in the process of writing them, but, uh, but yes, they get very, very carefully uh, read a lot. Because um, quite often you, you've got a book sort of 99% finished 
And as you're writing the end, you know you've got to go back and put some other things in there. So you read it to make sure that all those things are streamlined. My wife, who is also a novelist, uh, is also my first reader. So she she reads everything I do before anybody else does and can point out if I've done something really stupid. Um, but then, as I say, I sometimes go back, not not in an arrogant way, but I sometimes go back after a book's been published and I will read it again, or at least speed read it again, um, because it's, I, I find it quite interesting to see what I've done before. And again, when it's a series of books, you need to research what you've done because there's no way you can remember everything. Uh, you, need to, you need to keep up to, with your own continuity, let alone anything else. So, yes, I do. I do read. <laughs> I do I end up reading myself a lot, which is a very strange thing to do. And so and the, what's the strange part of it is when you surprise yourself, when you read something, you go, well, that's really good. I don't remember doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, another universe you've written for is Doctor Who. Yes. Um, for the comic strip and then a few audio dramas. Did mm -hmm. you watch Doctor Who as when you were growing up? I absolutely did. I absolutely did. And this, this, will, this will give you some idea of how old I am. But my, my Doctor Who was John Pertwee, who was the third Doctor. Uh, I remember watching I was very young at the time, but, but I, I thought that was an, an, uh, he was amazing. I also loved Tom Baker. So I watched a lot of the original Doctor. Uh, and then when I was at Marvel, when I was still at Marvel on staff as an editor, uh, although I was beginning to freelance and write things like uh, um, uh, Ghostbusters and stuff like that as a freelance writer, I, I, my office had joined the office of Doctor Who Monthly, Doctor Who magazine. And it sort of re renewed, and this was before Doctor Who came back on the television, and it renewed my interest in Doctor Who, which I'd loved, loved as a kid, and I realised how influential it was. And Doctor Who magazine published a, I think it was seven or eight pages of comic strip every month in black and white. And I remember when I was invited to write a story for them, which was the first of my Doctor Who comic strips, that I was, I felt that I'd sort of really arrived because up to then I'd been doing this sort of younger junior stuff, but this was Doctor Who. This was like a serious, serious thing to do. Uh, and, I, and I loved it. And, and my, my relationship with them has, has, has run ever since. So, so yes, I've done the, um, did a lot of comic strips in the beginning and then had the delight of writing several audios. Uh, I think David Tennant reads one of them and, and, um, uh, uh, there's, there's a Donna one and there's a there's a Martha one and all sorts of stuff like that. But also writing some of their novels for them as well, which because I they they I, they got me to write one of the original Torchwood novels actually, which obviously Doctor Who related, which is a weird thing to write because I had to write it before I'd seen the TV show because we had to get the books out by the time the TV show arrived. So I had a lot of guesswork in there. And then to write original, I wrote uh, uh, the, uh, the Christmas Doctor Who novel a few years ago, which was a Matt Smith one. Um, so I, obviously it was a enthusiastic when Doctor Who came back on the television. Uh, and Doctor Who's got a very particular, I think Doctor Who's got a very particular and inclusive fandom. It's fan base, it's readership base, it's enthusiasm comes from everywhere. Almost everybody likes Doctor Who. And one of the reasons that almost everybody likes Doctor Who is because there's so many versions of Doctor Who to like. It, it, Doctor Who is not one thing. It, it, is, it has been so different over the years in its tone, in the lead actors who've played the character, that kind of stuff. So there, there's, there's a, if you like, I, in my, it's my belief that there is a version of Doctor Who for everyone, you know. Um, I think you're a person who's automatically very fond of the one they grew up with, but you could be fond of other things. So it was, uh, yes, something I enjoyed, enjoyed very, very much and really, really had fun uh, writing things, knowing that certain actors were going to be reading them, you know, uh, so that, that was, that was a, that was a lovely thing to do. What do you think of there being a female doctor? I think it's high time there was a female doctor. I think it's a fantastic thing. I think she's doing a, a, a Jodie's doing a brilliant job, uh, and uh, and I think it's 
uh, I think if you can't do that with Doctor Who, then what sort of character can you do it with? I think it's, it, I just think it makes enormous sense. And I think it gives us an opportunity to explore ideas about time laws and stuff like that, 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 are, that are worthwhile. But I, yeah, yes, I, I sort of, there have been people who've complained about it and I've sort of been disappointed that they have not complained about the story, but just complained about the idea of doing it in the first place. And I thought, what a, what a shame. Why would we, why would we complain about that? Um, I, I'm sure they, the same people wouldn't have complained if Doctor Who had always been a female character. And now we were talking about doing a male one. I think, I think, yeah, I just, there's a strange slight prejudice there, but yes, female Doctor Who I think is a fantastic thing. Me too. Um, Good. So I'm asking all my guests on the podcast, who has inspired you throughout your lifetime? Wow. Uh, so many people. It's like an Oscar acceptance speech moment, isn't it? I'd just like to thank my agents and everybody. No, uh, I think I think there are, I mean, I, I, my, my parents inspired me because they, were, they are very creative people and they encouraged me to be creative. My wife inspires me because she's very supportive and patient and also a very creative person. Uh, my daughters inspire me. I've got one particularly creative daughter who who is, uh, she's actually in, in drama and she's theatrical and so, and so so it's creativity coming out of all, all over the place and there are various um say going back to teachers the teacher the teacher who advised me that maybe i wanted to study english rather than go to go to art college that was a pivotal moment in my life and of course there are artists and creators who inspire me on a daily basis so i have favorite authors i have favorite films i have favorite comic book artists i have uh, you know favorite music all sorts of things like that which which are a key points of inspiration I think, I think if I was going to single one of those out, it would be uh, an American science fiction author called Ray Bradbury, uh, who's sadly now dead, but he he, uh, he wrote uh, some absolutely spectacular novels um, that are actually very accessible. If you've not read any of Ray Bradbury, to read something like um, Dandelion Wine or The Martian Chronicles uh, or Something Wicked This Way Comes, they, they are magical extraordinary uh, and the, the reason I like him very very much indeed is that not only was he a great writer who who had amazing ideas um, in fact one of his novels which is called Fahrenheit 451 is is a sort of prophetic dystopian novel that is as important to us today as 1984 or Brave New World or or, or, or The Handmaid's Tale it's a, it's a really really important novel to have read but he he was the I discovered him when I was quite young and what really surprised me was that as a, for a novelist, he was extraordinarily poetic. He used language the way that a poet does um, with sort of multiple meanings and, and sort of uh, um, impressionistic meanings, even though he was writing prose. And I had never come across anything like that before. And, and that's why I remind, I mean, in fact, in fact, I would recommend it to you. There is a, my favorite novel of all time is called Dandelion Wine. And it's about two boys growing up in a small town in America in the 1920s. And it's, it's slightly supernatural, but it's joyously supernatural. It's full of strange things. And I read it probably when I was about your age and it just, it just made a huge impression. I think it's something that has gone on to inspire in its own way, things like Stranger Things. And, and you know, it's, it's a very influential novel. But if you read it, you'll, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about in terms of his use of language. And I think that was the, I'd, I'd written, read many books before I read Ray Bradbury as a child, and I'd loved them, but I'd love them as stories. He was the first one where I was aware of a, an author doing something very specific with the words, the actual words, uh, to create the effect of his story rather than just writing a good story. In other words, he was the first visible author. Usually an author is invisible and what you're tied into is the story. And that made a very, very big impression on me. 
Um, and I've, I've loved his work ever since. And he is regarded as one of the great American writers, justifiably. So, <laughs> so yes. And yes, everybody else, my agent, my cat, my dog, my, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you could choose one series of novels, I would say one book or one comic, but you've written so many. Okay. What would your favourite series be? Oh, dearie me. That is incredibly difficult. Uh, oh, it is, that is really, really difficult because it's, it's like, I would probably have to pick ultimately a series that is known as the Inquisitor Cycle that starts with the Eisenhorn books, the Eisenhorn books, which are Xenos, uh, Malleus and Hereticus. Uh, the reason I, that they are, they are still very, very popular books. I'm now writing the third trilogy in the sequence. In fact, it's a, this, the next book that I publish is, is, is in that sequence with these characters. And the reason I picked that over even something like Gaunt's Ghost, which is my longest running series, and I, I love it to death, which is why it's a difficult pick. Um, but Eisenhorn, um, which which is in the process of being turned into a Netflix show. So you will see it on television. Um, but Eisenhorn was, is, is now regarded as one of the sort of, entry points into Warhammer. If, if a new person comes along to Warhammer and they've not read any of the novels before, a lot of people like to recommend the Eisenhorn books as a great starting place because they sort of explain the story from the ground up. And they're, they're, they're kind of detective stories. He's, a, he's an inquisitor, so he's seeking heretics. And, and what was really interesting about writing them was was this, they weren't war stories, unlike Gaunt's Ghosts or anything like that. They weren't set on the, on the tabletop battlefield. They were novels set in the sort of cities and planets away from the game these the, uh, on the worlds that the game was all about protecting. So they they were they. I had to invent a lot. I had to imagine what everyday life was like. It was no. They were no longer combat novels or military science fiction. They were they were about what we jokingly refer to as domestic forty k. Um, and as a result, they've had a real lasting impact. So if I was going to pick anything, I, I I would reluctantly pick that. I suppose or guardians. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you have written an awful lot. Um, uh, yes. So finally, what have you got planned for the future? Have you got any more novels coming out soon? I absolutely have, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, just so much going on. I'm, I'm writing, writing a lot of comics as usual. I particularly would point you in, in the direction of the stuff I did for 2000 AD and the mm -hmm. Joe Strait magazine, where I've got several series running, which are, are very well received, particularly Brink in 2000 AD, which is uh, a, a sort of sci-fi detective story. Uh, and a strip called Lawless, which is in the Judge Dredd magazine, which is about a female judge in the Judge Dredd universe. And that's, we've just done, of all things, we did a musical episode of it, which you can go online and hear the songs we wrote to go with it. So that's crazy. But that, both of those strips are beautifully drawn and are very, very popular with the, uh, uh, with the readers. And another strip in 2008 called The Out, which I do, which is about a, 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 a woman who's a photojournalist who has gone out into space and is traveling around alien worlds, sort of encountering weird things, which, again, has been very well received. So that, those, those, those are ongoing projects. Uh, but novel wise, um, I have just written a book, I just finished and delivered a book called Penitent, which is the second book in a in the Beckwin trilogy. And the Beckwin trilogy matters because it's the it's the latest in the Eisenhorn sequence. So there was the Eisenhorn trilogy followed by the Ravenel trilogy. This is the Beckwin trilogy. So it's got Eisenhorn and Ravenel and all the characters in it. Um, and that's that's been long awaited. And I'm, I'm really pleased with the way it's turned out. And we're also, as I mentioned to you earlier, we've now we've now bringing the Horus heresy to an end in, in Warhammer. Uh, having written the very first book and contributed several along the way, we are now in the Siege of Terror, which is the eight book sequence um, that finishes it off. And... 
uh, it's incredibly exciting because it's huge myths that we're playing with and there's a huge responsibility and we're working as a team on it. And I wrote the fourth book, which has just come out, just a few months ago came out. It's called Saturnine. And I would recommend it to people, obviously, but it, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a huge, huge sprawling book, but there's, there's more work to be done on that. So there's, 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 there's very big, exciting things to do. Um, and, and I still keep writing the other thing. So, so um, Gaunt's Ghost, which is my sort of uh, story, my ongoing novels about infantrymen in the Warhammer universe. That's been going now for, I think, 15 novels. And there's going to be another one of those soon as well. But I've just got to get the bits I'm doing now finished before I can turn back to that. So there's always something, always something new to do. And, and, and I mentioned game work. I work on games. I'm working on a couple of games now um that will be coming out in the next year or so which i think are, are quite exciting quite often you can't talk about these things until they're released but uh, that's a, a wonderful thing to do so yes i'm as busy as ever let's put it that way and and uh, and there's lots of new things very very close to coming out that is an awful lot of things well thank you so much for coming on the podcast dan abner well thank you very much for having me on it's been a real pleasure to talk to you Thanks so much to Dan Abnett for coming on the podcast and I really would recommend his books. I'll leave the link down below in the description. Well, in two weeks' time, it will be the last episode of season one of the Jammy podcast. But who will I be interviewing? You'll have to wait to find out. But don't worry, we won't be away for long. More information will be revealed soon about what will happen in our break. But there will be a Christmas bonus episode released on Christmas Eve. Well, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you soon. All music on this podcast was found at karaokeversion.com, and this was recorded during the COVID-19 2020 pandemic, so it was recorded via Zoom.